welcome to the Stanley Street Social Podcast presented by the TAC. The road belongs to us all. We're proud to be a part of their road campaign to make sure that cyclists, drivers, pedestrians, everyone is doing their bit out on the road to make a safe riding, driving environment for all users. One very important key message of the campaign is to just to be aware of your surroundings. Be aware of car drivers that are around you. Be aware of other riders that are around you be aware of pedestrians that are around you and just be considerate and aware of what is going on on the road just to make sure that you and everyone can get to their destination in a safe manner a big thank you to our kit partner map as well they've just replenished a lot of stock on their website and released a lot of brand new colors and designs if you head to map.cc you'll be able to check out their range in particular the emblem pro hex jersey one of their most popular jerseys is back in stock new designs uh, if you want to check that out actually head to map.cc uh, so a big thank you to the map and the tac for presenting this podcast today's episode is with jack haig uh, we talked to Hagi the week after he got back from the tour de france after a disappointing stage three where he crashed out uh, and broke his collarbone which he'll talk about in kind of a very horrific fashion Throughout the pod, we kind of start off talking about a little bit about the um, rider union and what's going on in that part before talking about the Tour de France itself, what actually happened uh, and how he's kind of dealing with the the challenge of being in such a good position heading into the Tour de France. First few stages went so well when there was so much carnage, but unfortunately for Jack, just got caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, on stage three. Hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, please let me know on social, leave a review on the iTunes store. All is appreciated. And we'll see you back at the social club next time. Welcome back to the Stanley Street Social Podcast, Jack Haig. It's good to chat again in um, some interesting circumstances. Like, obviously, our thoughts are out to you in in a tricky time post uh, stage stage two or stage three crash. Stage three. Stage three um, crash. Broke your collarbone. After being in some like it looked like you're in super nick in some tricky times. Like there was a lot of experienced GC guys that were missing out on some pretty valuable seconds in those first few days. Yeah, thanks for having me back on. And uh, yeah, it was it was quite disappointing to leave after doing so well in those first two days and sort of being inside the top ten, having come out of uh, Dolphine, having done a really good result there. And then I really kind of felt like those first two and a half days until I crashed more or less, the team was working really well. I was right there at the front. And like you said, there was quite a few GC guys who had missed out on those valuable seconds that could definitely play a role later on in the race that I had managed to be on the right side of those splits to sort of capitalize on those first couple of tricky days. You also, like, I, I don't know. I feel like it's, this could be completely wrong, but I've got a hunch that like, yeah. if you're making those splits, it's yes, it's, it's part luck. It's part like yeah. the jumbo crash where there was a sign in the road. Like, what can you do about that? They were riding, yeah. they're doing everything right. But the other crashes, like you make your own luck, you put yourself in the position, you do that like extra 10 to 20 watts to be in that right spot. And so I think it's- no, 100%. A, it's a good indication of form. It's a good indication of condition. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think you see the, the people that were doing well in those first couple of stages are still doing well now. Yeah. Like it's, it's not luck that you did well in those first couple of stages. One, the, the two finishes were 
quite hard. Like those uphill finishes were, were solid. And then, like you said, you need to have that extra power and extra form and condition to be able to put yourself in those places because maybe to avoid the crash, you spent an extra couple of minutes riding in the wind on the outside of the peloton to get around them to the front instead of being like, ah, maybe that was a bit too hard and I'll sit here more in the middle of the peloton and then that's when the crash happens and you get caught out. So I think you're right. Yeah, and it's that like hard balancing act of like, uh, I w- <laughs> I w- the easy options there. The easy options there. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and it becomes easier to make that decision between the balance of whether you sit in the peloton and save the energy, or you use a little bit of energy to go around the outside or move up and be put yourself in that position when you have good condition, because mm-hmm. it's not so much of a compromise. Whereas if you're a little bit on the fence and you don't have that amazing condition, then you might be like, wow, actually, it's not so hard here in the middle of the bunch. And maybe I just wait another couple of kilometers until I try and move up. And then that's when you can get caught out. Yeah. Do you, is there more emphasis too on it when the Tour de France is on the line? You know, you're going in there to ride GC. Oh, yeah, no, 100%. And I think that's also why you see so many more crashes at the Tour de France compared to other races is everyone has that mentality that it's the Tour. Like, it's the biggest race in the world. And I saw some statistic on Twitter the other day. Someone posted a Google stats or Google uh, statistics on the Google searches for Matthew Vanderpool. And he ha- it had like the Tour of Flanders and the other races that he's done well, like so across worlds. And then you see this massive spike in the Tour de France. Yeah. And that's what it is. It's the biggest advertisement for our sport by so far. It just adds all this pressure to riding well and doing well there because if you want to make a name for yourself, if you want to promote your team sponsors, you want to commit to everything, you do it at the tour. Mm. Well, especially like for us back in Australia, everyone, there's been so many successful cyclists across the years that have won big classics, green jerseys, well, not, not green jerseys, but out, everything outside the Tour de France. But really, they yeah. know about one guy. They know about exactly. Yeah. And like it, it is quite strange because you can say maybe Richie was, has maybe a, a higher Palmares in terms of once you take the Tour de France out, he's done so well in these week long stage races. He's been one of the best riders of this generation, I think, at week long stage races. But until last year, he hadn't really converted any result at the Tour de France. Hmm. And people maybe don't know his name as widely as people know Cadell's name yeah yeah it's it's the big dance it's the big dance yeah i remember um i guess when i was starting to get a bit more interested in about cycling and how it how it was run and where the money came from i did a podcast with david miller and he yep. was like yeah the aso own the sport like tour de france yeah. is everything if you take the tour de france away the sport is just a cottage industry of a small yep. section of niche passionate fans. I think it's something ridiculous. Like ASO makes like 60 million in profit off the Tour de France or like it's some ridiculous number. That's probably not the correct number, but all I know is that it's some crazy large number. ASO makes profit from operating the Tour de France. Because mm-hmm. when you think about it, there's all these start towns. Like for example, I think Andorra must've paid over one and a half Two million euros to have the Tour de France finish last yesterday's stage, have the rest day, and then start the next day in Andorra, and that's just one town paying that amount of money. Yeah, 
do you feel like there's any kind of progression on the writer um, unit, um, writer union, and working towards that uh, revenue share model, something down the track? No, not at the moment, <laughs> but I do think there is some progression in the writers' union in terms of getting the getting more safety for writers. So we now definitely have more of a voice, and I think there is the writers' union is going in the right direction. But I think it will be quite a long time until we get down that revenue sharing path. And I've kind of had this conversation with a few people recently about the whole business model of professional cycling and how strange it is because it was quite cool. The other day, I actually was a spectator to the Tour de France. Like I had a barbecue with some friends that lived on the, the course of the Tour de France that was coming into Andorra. We went outside, we went and watched it. We saw the caravan come past. And then also being part of the race this year for those first two and a half stages in Bretagne, there was so many people on the side of the road. And after having sort of that COVID year where spectators weren't there, maybe it was emphasized a little bit, the feeling, but to see the amount of people that come out to support cycling and the amount of people cycling brings to countries like Andorra, like Andorra was full of people for the stage here. And you say, how does this sport not make more money when in a very simplistic way of thinking about it, if the whole idea of sponsoring a team is to have eyeballs viewing a brand, like cycling seems like the best deal in the world. I mean, think about it because you can pay what between 12 and 20 million euros and you can have a team called your brand. Whereas say in like the NBA or NFL teams aren't called a brand. They're called like a, a city. Whereas here you can have the Stanley street social cycling team mm, and I'm everyone Exactly. I thought so. I'm, mm. sure, I'm sure you're signing big checks. Yeah. Um, but you're going to have that name out there and everyone will hear that name and everyone will see that name ride past. And how do we not, how does every single year we struggle in this sport to get sponsors and to get revenue when you see the amount of people is insane. Like those first couple of stages were 200 kilometers and there was people lining the road from kilometer zero until kilometer 200 you're like, holy moly, that's so many people watching this sport, but yet we have no way of creating revenue. Mm. And I think that's like, like that is the point though. This sport survives on, on just normally individuals donating a heap of cash for purely just awareness. And if they didn't have that, then like there'd literally be nothing. And, and out of that becomes, it's pretty magical when you actually think about how unstructured and how messy the whole thing is oh. <laughs> that, that writers can come out of the sport earning millions of dollars a year when yeah, there's because essentially a, a lot of the teams are run by, by like you said people individuals that are kind of donating to the sport and yeah then you have yeah people that are making million euro contracts if not more and it's such a strange business model this because like it doesn't really make any sense or like it requires those people just to have passion for the sport to essentially donate the money. Yeah. And it shows there's, um, I don't have the figures with me, but I remember reading some, some figures that really put it into perspective of the amount of people that were aware and would consider to watch the tour de France versus, um, the NFL. And then it had like the actual value of the sport and it was chalk yeah. and cheese. The amount of people that are 
that it, like you said, that line the streets of the Tour de France, that watch the Tour de France, it has an amazing global presence, but there's no one to bring it together. There's no one to tie it together. Like even, um, and I think the, the real, the bit that gets me is the, there's no trickle down of cash. So the ASO just takes all Nothing. of it. The pro teams get none of it. And also the, the bit that really is, is tough is the, the junior ranks. And like, for example, the team that we both came, the teams that we both came through, one is pretty much Andrew Christie Johnson and Steve Price donating their time to the sport. And yep. then an under 23 program that the moment that, well, we were so lucky that Jerry Ryan donated the cash to put up, to get us through that program. But the moment he says, I've, I don't need, we don't need to do that anymore. It's gone. That's it. Yeah, it doesn't later. exist anymore. Yeah. And you have this global sporting brand, I guess, of professional cycling that has no depth once you look below that. And especially now with the whole situation of COVID and the lack of maybe development racing, because I'm not sure there was that much under 23 or amateur racing last year with COVID. And then it doesn't seem like it's come back very much this year yet, but I hope it does start to come back soon. But like you said, there, there's no depth there. Hmm. So on the safety part, talk to me about how that's kind of come to light. It feels like Jakobsen, the incident with uh, Grunewagen was kind of a bit of a junction in like, all right, we really need to do something about like This is getting out of hand. Yeah. And I think that was a bit of a turning point. And I think also just, having the, the conflict between the CPA as well as the rider union was also a bit of a turning point there because now we have more or less two uh, companies or two uh, entities fighting for us as professional cyclists to try and make the sport better. And I think we are seeing now that we are racing faster. The bikes are better. The speed is higher. There's more road furniture because the roads are being more developed for the bigger population that we have now in the world and it's becoming more and more dangerous and we need to figure something out. And I think also this tour de France has really highlighted the problem of that because we saw so many crashes at the beginning and throughout the tour so far. And there is some, some movement there. Like the other day they moved the three K rule to four and a half K I think. But I think like a lot of people have said that's not really making a difference. The thing that's prone to really make a difference is if they move the, so the time's taken at 5Ks or at 10Ks before the finish. And then you say, okay, you need to finish within 30 seconds or a minute of the first finisher so you don't have half a pelt on completely sitting up and rolling in at 20K an hour because that looks pretty average for the sport. But it would make it much safer if they say, okay, 5Ks to go, everyone crosses this timing chip thing, the time for GC is taken there. And then you have to finish within 30 seconds or a minute of whoever wins the stage on a sprint stage. So you can more or less sit up right in the very back of the peloton. There you can have a small gap, but everyone finishes more or less together. And then you leave the last five kilometers for the sprint teams. So instead of having a hundred guys of that 150 competing for those last three kilometers to try and find space on the road, you only have maybe 50 guys that are interested in doing the lead out in the sprint. Mm. And I think Oh, I hope that's where the sport's going to end up with that rule at the end there. And there's definitely a lot of pressure from the riders as well as these two entities of the CPA and the riders union to try and make that change. So how, like how, how do you communicate that? What's, what's the, 
the process so, of MyMap? Uh, there's actually uh, an application that was built by the Writers' Union that you can be a part of if you're part of the Writers' Union group and you can make messages through that. So there is some communication there. And then there's also a Telegram group for the CPA for each race. So for like, there's a special C, uh, CPA telegram for Dolphinator, there's a special CPA telegram for Tour de France. And then there is some communication there backwards and forwards. Like, I think there was lots of talks about uh, having uh, a protest uh, at one moment throughout the tour in the first couple of stages after how dangerous the finishes were. And there was a lot of communication through those applications to try and organize what we would do as riders and what would be the most beneficial thing to do. So there is communication there between the riders in the race as well as kind of like a, a mediator of the CPA or of the riders' union. Yeah. Uh, who's running the riders' union? Who's the boss? Tell you the truth, I can't tell you off the top of my head, <laughs> which is pretty and bad. But, has, the C- uh, has the CPA picked up its game since Yes. there's a yeah, new so, cat on the block? Both of them are like elevating each other a little bit in terms yeah. of making it a little bit more proactive. Um, but I think there can be more change coming the start of next year when I think the riders should be able to choose which entity they want to be represented by. So at the moment, you have to be represented by the CPA, but you can also be part of the riders' union. But you have to pay to be part of the riders' union because the CPA takes a percentage out of our prize money to operate yeah. and to have staff and et cetera. But the writers' union at the moment doesn't have that ability through the UCI to take a percentage of our salary. So you have to pay, I think it's around 600 euros to be a part of the uh, writers' union. But hopefully from the beginning of next year, the idea is that the writers can choose who they want to be represented by. And then if I want to be represented by the writers' union, then that percentage that the CPA normally takes, the writers' union would get. But if I want to be represented by the CPA, then it stays that way. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a massive step forward. Yes. I think we're moving in the right direction for the athletes in the sport to have more of, more of a voice rather than just kind of being puppets in the puppet show and just doing what we are told. So in that regard, I think the sport is getting better. But I think the sport still has a long way to go with creating a more sustainable business model for the teams. Yeah. But it must be nice. Like... It seems like business model is it's not in your writing career. It's probably not, unfortunately, which is a shame. But the safe like you're in you're in the fortunate position where you're on a good team, career's going really well, good cash, all that kind of bits and pieces. But it must be nice knowing like, all right, there's actually progressions in the safety front moving forward for me. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Like I still remember maybe three or four years ago we did this stage in the Giro and we're coming in like the last five kilometers, super fast sprint stage. And we just went through this tunnel and it was pitch black. And like, it was the most unsafe thing. I can't believe no one crashed. And then we didn't really have a voice even three or four years ago to make a proper change. And now it actually feels like we can do something to make the sport safer and more sustainable for the athletes. So we can compete all year round rather than having these injuries. Like I have now, not that my injury was maybe from an unsafe course, but, there's definitely some people that are having injuries from unmarked bollards in the road or unsafe finishes or yeah, just to make the sport, it can still be the spectacle that it is now, but it can be safer for all the athletes involved. 
Yeah. There's a lot of risk that we take. Yeah. Like I think sometimes people don't maybe see this on TV, how close we are racing together, or they don't have the sensation of how fast we are actually going until you stand by the side of the road and feel the peloton go past. Mm. And to realize that we're literally just wearing lycra and a piece of star from on our head. Yeah. It's so like the first few stages of the tour, what do you, what do you think about those just from a safety perspective? Well, I think it, it created really good racing. Like I think it must have been exciting to watch on TV. But where because those stages were put at the very beginning of the Tour de France, you had so much to gain and so much to lose by not being in the correct position or yeah. So I think that's why we saw so many crashes. Whereas I think if those stages were placed stage six, seven, and eight, it probably wouldn't have been as stressful. But it was the fact that they were placed one, two, and three. There was so much there to gain and lose. Everyone was taking a little bit extra risk to be there because there was the yellow jersey. There was time if you got caught out in the wrong split. If you weren't at the front at the bottom of the climb and you had to make that distance back, maybe you were never coming back and you're losing 20, 30 seconds like we saw quite a few people doing. So, yeah, it's tricky because I realize part of the sport is also the viewing process of it and creating drama and excitement. But then there also needs to be the the safety part there as well. So it's a hard balance to find. And I I hope we're in the process of trying to find that balance a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. It was like it was good to watch. But the out like just losing so many riders. Yeah. Like, I think that it was good to watch, but the outcome hindered the back end of the race. It hurts us now. hundred percent. Yeah, I agree. Because now I kind of had this conversation with someone else that yeah, you have this clear leader now of Pogachar, and then you have like from second till sixth or seventh, second till seventh, everyone's more or less on the same time. Like there's very little differentiating these guys and they can't seem to make the, the difference by attacking. So now we kind of just have this status quo during the races and the stages now, and it's not that interesting to watch. And Cavs the only sprinter. Exactly. Cavs the only sprinter leading green. So it's a sprint stage. Everyone says, oh, Cavs got a 9 out of 10 chance of winning. Pogacar's got basically a 10 out of 10 chance of winning Tour de France unless he has some disaster of crashing, basically. And then you have this second to seventh and everyone's on the same time. and can't really make a difference. So maybe it's going to happen in the time trial at the mm-hmm. very end. Yeah. It's kind of like, wow. Yeah. Now, because we've lost maybe these other GC contenders that could have been there to shake up the the stages there's not that interesting to watch i think maybe the most interesting thing at the moment is the battle for the kom jersey yeah it's seriously though no like <laughs> yeah exactly K- like <laughs> the kom jersey some years you're like uh, who, who's even winning it like who, who's in front but like yeah. it's so like you're seeing quintana and poles and woods and those guys just going at it like it's it's cool yeah exactly and i like you said in other years no one's even really spoken about it who would have thought that 2021 would be the year that the KOM jersey came back into vogue? <laughs> yeah. How's, um, exactly. so, well, talk, talk me through the crash. What actually, talk me through what happened. Uh, to be honest, I can't really like recall 100%. I'm sure you know from crashes in the past, like it all happened so fast mm. that, yeah, I remember there was a massive fight for these last like 10, 12 kilometers. There was quite a few crashes before my crash that happened. Um, I remember hearing on the radio, like, oh, there's been quite a few GC guys already caught out from the crashes, like just stay up there, like be safe. 
And yeah, we came into this more or less final left-hand corner of this narrow road that we'd been on for quite a long time. And we were racing super fast. And I think what happened was we maybe came up to the corner with a lot of speed and I was maybe mid pack of the quite reduced group. And there was a concertina effect of braking and the corner coming up fast. And yeah, I just ended up in the middle basically, I think, and came down in the middle of the, the bunch there and hit the ground pretty hard. I think we must've been going quite fast, maybe 56 Ks now at that moment. And I remember sort of coming down, going, having the crash, quite a few people around me also crashing and then trying to get back up to get my bike. And I remember maybe I was on my back or my stomach. I remember trying to do a push up, more or less motion to get up, to go over my bike. And Marco Huller, my teammate, he was there. And he said, oh, you basically try to do a push up to go get your bike, did it. And then sat straight back down. And then uh, I almost passed out, I think, right at that moment because my collarbone was completely shattered. And when I tried to do that push up, I could feel like the bone and stuff all move yeah. inside. And that's kind of like when I knew I was like, ah, this isn't good. <laughs> oh, so you're just running off that much adrenaline from the crash and yeah. everything that was going on. And, it was like, yeah, let's go, get me back, fight. get me back. Yeah. And like that whole fight for the last 15 kilometers had been so intense. Like I was like, oh, just let's go. Let's get my bike. Let's get back on the road. Like only four cases to the finish. And then, yeah, I made, almost immediately knew once I kind of like tried to get up i was like ah, oh, this is good like i don't think i'm getting up and i remember i was lying i was sitting on the side of the road and i was like ah, oh, i think my shoulder was like pretty banged up here and i asked my director i was like oh, how far is it to the finish He's like oh it's only 4k and i was like ah. Oh. and then i tried to move my shoulder and i could feel the bone move and i was like ah, oh, no <laughs> get me in the ambulance oh. <laughs> have, you, have yeah. you broken your collarbone before no so i've been actually incredibly lucky this is more or less the first like crash I've had as a professional. Like, yeah, I've had a few touchdowns. Like I came down in that crash with Tony Martin and the, the jumbo guys, but I just had a tiny bit of skin off. Like it was almost nothing, but this is like the first proper crash I've had as a professional. And yeah, I managed to do my collarbone pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I've always thought, cause I've never broken anything. It was like, how do you actually like, do you, do you hundred percent know that it's broken? Like, do you like, like, but yeah. it sounds like oh, you can feel I, that it's broken. And like, I think maybe sometimes if you just fracture it a little bit, you might not feel like you hear about some guys that have like fractured their collarbone and still ridden to the finish. But like mine was really bad and I could feel things moving. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's, it's done. And I basically told my director straight away. I was like, oh, I think I broke my shoulder. Like I, I think I, I didn't know if it was my collarbone or my shoulder at the beginning. Yeah. What, what are you, what are you feeling like in the car afterwards? Like what, what are you, what are you thinking about? What are you worried about? What's, what's going on through your head? Uh, so basically, what happened? I crashed. The medical team came to kind of assess me. I uh, passed out for a little bit, from what I know, and then came to, and like most of the people had already sort of like the cult on passed and and then got into an ambulance. And then I remember asking the the woman in the ambulance that was with me, I was kind of like, oh, how far is it to the hospital? And then she was trying to ask me where my team hotel was. So I got to the hospital and once I got to the my room in the hospital, I was kind of worried about contacting my wife because I knew like she'd be probably watching on TV. And luckily one of my directors had already contacted her 
explained that I was more or less okay. Um, so I tried to make a phone call to her, let her know I was all right. Um, and then, yeah, I was kind of about just trying to assess the damage and see where I was at. I kind of already knew that, yeah, something was broken. So my team doctor was there with me. And before I'd even had the x-ray, I was also trying to organize to have a, a surgeon to book to book in some surgery for, for the collarbone. And then in in the hospital in France, I ended up going to a really small hospital because we had so many people crash throughout the stage because there was that crash with Grant Thomas in the middle of the stage. I think uh, Guessing broke his collarbone there. Uh, then there was a few other crashes before my crash. And the lady in the ambulance said that a lot of the hospitals around were actually quite full because of so many crashes in the race. Yeah. And I ended up going to quite a small hospital, but in the end, it was quite nice. And I got to have the x-ray quite fast. I had a CT scan for concussion, which luckily came back uh, all okay. So I had no concussion. And then, yeah, the x-ray for my collarbone. I was in so much pain from the, the crash and the damage to my collarbone. I had to spend the night that night in the hospital and then tried to arrange to get back to Andorra or to somewhere to have surgery as fast as possible. And in the end, I decided to have surgery in Andorra. So spent the night in the hospital. Next morning, woke up at like 6 a.m., tried to get the nurse to give me a shower because I was still filthy and gross and sweaty from oh. <laughs> the stage. So like tried to have this shower with a French nurse that didn't speak any English at like 6 a.m. in so much pain. And then, yeah, flew from a small French airport close by to the hospital to Toulouse Airport in France and then got a taxi, which is three hours more or less from Toulouse Airport to Andorra. And that travel was grim. How much is a a three-hour taxi? Like 300 euros. (laughs) 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 Yeah. And like this poor taxi driver, he was was so nice. But like the last hour of this taxi ride, I was in a world of pain and like just dead quiet in the back, basically comatose, being like, just get me home, mate. (laughs) And you're going up to Andorra, which I've never been to Andorra, but I imagine there's a lot of switchbacks and it's not a straight straight down highway. No. It was not comfortable. So I was just like in the back bracing myself around every switch back so I didn't move my shoulder. Yeah, so then got to Andorra. That was Tuesday. So I crashed Monday Monday night, French hospital, traveled Tuesday, Tuesday night at home, Wednesday straight to the hospital in Andorra and the traumatologist. Assessment, more x-rays there. Uh, and basically the doctor came to me. He's like, oh, you're in quite a bit of pain. I was like, oh. Yeah, mate. Like it's really bad. He's like, "Oh, you've managed to fracture your collarbone into four pieces, basically, and like it's quite bad because it's really close to your shoulder." He's like, "Okay, we're gonna go surgery." Did the surgery. I spoke to the doctor straight after the surgery, and he said, "Ah, oh, it was a lot more complicated than we expected." So the surgery ended up being like two and a half hours, and for a normal collarbone, I think it's like around an hour. And he said, "Ah, oh, we had to basically cut your collarbone." Open, put the plate in. We did 12 screws, six big ones, six little ones. And at the time, I didn't really understand because he only speaks uh, Spanish and like a tiny bit of English, but I could understand enough. And he was saying something about needing to put a piece of bone inside my collarbone to reconstruct it. And I was a bit confused and I was like, oh, maybe like he had to take a piece of bone from my hip and like I haven't felt it yet because I've just woken up from all the anesthesia and I was like, oh, 
oh, all right, that's a bit weird. And then my wife had a phone call with him and she obviously speaks Spanish. And uh, I heard something about a cadaver. I was like, oh, I spoke to her. I was like, what, what, what's this about a, a cadaver? Which is, oh, you have a piece of bone from someone else in your collarbone. So they have this thing in the hospital called a bone bank, which is like <laughs> a spare part bin for bones. An auto barn for and, skeletons. Yeah. Yeah. And basically the surgeon said, I shattered my collarbone so much that he couldn't rebuild it properly and he needed to take a piece of bone from the bone bank to tie all my collarbone together. So that was pretty wild. I didn't even know that existed. Ah, that is crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah. Why 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 did they do why didn't they do this in the French hospital or did you want to get home quickly? Yeah, so uh the initial x-ray wasn't so bad and like his assessment from the the surgeon in the French hospital, he's like, Oh, if you were a regular person, I probably wouldn't do surgery, but because you're an athlete, like you could do surgery if you want, but it's not uh, necessary immediately. And then talking to my team doctor, he said, Oh, basically nine times out of 10 for athletes will do uh, surgery just because it's way faster for recovery. And I wanted to see a proper surgeon that was used to working with professional athletes. And uh, the surgeon in Andorra have, works quite a lot with uh, motorsport athletes, like MotoGP guys, super bike riders, and like Dakar drivers. And he did uh, Egon Bernal's collarbone, uh, I think like two or three years ago when he broke his pretty bad. So he has some experience working with athletes. And I also just wanted to get home. Mm. So that's why I ended up doing it in Andorra. And it makes all the checkups a little bit easier because I can go down and see the same surgeon and have the checkups with him. So I've already had one checkup a week after surgery. And then I have another checkup today to get the rest of the stitches out, to have another checkup x-ray to see how the healing process is going. Um, yeah, so it makes it a bit easier doing it all in Andorra. So the, the three-hour car ride was worth it? At the time, no, but now, yeah. <laughs> they didn't give you any painkillers, like. No, I, I had some pretty heavy painkillers, but I was. It was just that I was bad. In so much pain. Oh, mate! Like, and every movement I did with my shoulder before I had surgery, I could feel the bone moving, and it was such a weird and horrible feeling. Wait, were you thinking about trying to get an alternate way of transport? Like, can you get a chopper? Right, more or less the. There's more or less the only way I can get to Andorra, to be honest. Like, yeah, you get a chopper, but I'm, I'm not making five mil a year. It didn't, didn't want to ring up your Bahrain mates and just, you know, <laughs> you want to just like, you know, flick me your chopper for the night? <laughs> that would have been a sweet transport home, but it yeah. probably wasn't feasible. <laughs> and so, like, through this time, was there a point where the, the race disappointment hit you? You were like, ah. Oh. Oh, immediately after, like when I was in this hospital in France, I remember lying there on the bed in a lot of pain and my team doctor was there and I just started crying. And my team doctor was like, oh, like, what, what's wrong? Like, are you okay? Are you in pain? I was like, oh, no, I'm just, just sad, mate. Like, mm. to be honest, like I'm just disappointed. And yeah, not, not, not even really disappointed, just sad because I'd kind of put – so much pressure on myself to do well there and then made so many f sacrifices to arrive to the tour. And like also having had 
uh, a baby in this period and not really having that much time at home with the baby and my wife and all those sacrifices leading up to the tour and everything like my teammates had done. And I just kind of had all these thinking about all these people that helped me arrive to the tour. And I kind of felt like I'd let them down a little bit. And yeah, I just started crying in that hospital and the doctor was like, Oh, he didn't really know what to do. And I was like, Oh, it's not you can do, mate. Like I'm just, just, just sad. Hmm. And I kind of knew at that moment that I probably wasn't going to go to the Olympics as well. And that was kind of a pretty big thing that I spent a lot of time thinking about and trying to get to was the Olympics as well as the whole process of doing the Tour de France and then going straight to the Olympics and all that build up and kind of all in that moment, I kind of knew both of them probably weren't, well, I knew Tour de France wasn't going to happen, but then I kind of knew there was a very small chance I was probably, oh, there was a very big chance I was not going to the Olympics. Yeah. How do you how do you get over how do you move on from that? Like, was there a few was it days? There was a few days. Yeah, there was a few days that were uh, pretty grim. As well as like after the surgery, I was in a lot of pain for quite a few days afterwards because one of the pieces of bone that broke off has some ligaments and tendons attached to it. So when it because of the surgery was a bit more invasive than a normal collarbone surgery, I just had quite a lot of pain for quite a long time afterwards, and I couldn't really do anything and. In those days, I was still like, ah, man, this is, this is pretty shit. But then once I kind of, once that pain sort of started to go away, I could start to sleep a little bit better. I could start to do a few more things with the family and sort of just escape a little bit the cycling bubble and sort of just go back to being a dad and being a husband and just doing normal things. Then the pain of leaving the Tour de France and the pain of not being able to go to the Olympics kind of started to disappear a little bit. I was like, oh, look, it's not so bad. Like I'm at home now. I get to enjoy some family time and yeah, sort of move on. Mm. Speaking of dad, just put it all into perspective. A little bit, a little bit. Like it does, it does help. Like now you just come home and you just, I just hang out with Liam and, and Anna and like, we actually feel like a family now and it makes the disappointment and the sadness of, the Tour de France kind of disappear a lot faster, I think, than if I wasn't a father and didn't have a child. Yeah, like can you like imagine going home as a international, just living in oh, Andorra? Mate, I couldn't imagine like even I couldn't imagine being alone in this period. Like, yeah, I, even if I didn't have Liam, I would have still had Anna with me, and just that alone makes a massive difference. Like, I, I couldn't shower myself for quite a long time because I couldn't move my arm and I couldn't get the, the stitches wet and just to have her there helping me just simple things like taking a shower or getting the groceries or I, I couldn't chop anything. <laughs> yeah. I was pretty useless for quite a long time. Like I did have this moment where I was thinking like, imagine if like just being alone in this period must be like, it would have been impossible. I don't know what I would have done if I was alone, to be honest. Yeah, and, and I think that puts in perspective how much, like, yeah, the, the sport of cycling is a team sport, but a lot of the times it's an individual sport when you're left alone at home to prepare for these races or to recover from injuries like this, where it's not like you're, you're playing on a football team and you have all the facilities in the football club, five-minute drive from your house, 20-minute drive from your house, whatever it is. Mm. Yeah, if you had if you had an injury here for an AFL team, you'd go to yeah. the same training every day, you go to the same football club, or your teammates would be there, yeah. or your staff would be there. You yeah. just you left to go see a, a surgeon that speaks a foreign language. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. That's and how it works. Like I'm actually pretty fortunate in Andorra. I have a really good group of people around me that have helped me in the recovery process. So I have uh, a physio friend who's been coming to my house every single day after I had surgery for an hour, an hour and a half every day, helping me doing some rehab on the shoulder. I have a friend that's a personal trainer at a gym and he's helping me every day doing some work in the gym to keep active. Um, and then Anna is really good at supporting and helping with the recovery at home. And uh, I'm quite lucky. And you, you, you need as a professional cyclist to build this network of people around you in, in your home. Otherwise it makes it really hard because like you said, you don't have like an AFL, a, a full team that's, 20 minutes away that has the, all the training facilities, all the staff, all the support, everything. Yeah. And even just like you take out the physical capacity to do things, like just the mental capacity, if you're just yeah. by yourself every oh, day. It would, it would make the recovery so much longer and so much harder if you were just in your own head alone, like, yeah, in a foreign country with not the support network around you. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's something that gets quite forgotten about this sport and how hard it is for non-Europeans to make that transition of being professional and those first couple of years of being professional. Because not only whether it's just injuries like what I have now, but it's just every day-to-day living. Like a lot of the times, Australians, Americans are um, moving a long way away from their family, living alone in a foreign country that doesn't speak the language, then they don't speak the language. And you have a lot of time alone in your own head questioning yourself what you're doing and Mm. yeah it's hard you think that was easier on a starting with an aussie team yeah for sure because uh at least when you went to the races it was an easy environment like i couldn't imagine it being a hard environment at home and then going to a race like with a team where you didn't speak the language and didn't understand the culture as well because you just had the whole time then kind of like struggling with that cultural and language barrier yeah and then now like in your recent step you feel like you're ready to make that change to an international squad yeah it was definitely hard like it 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 was definitely hard at the beginning to to make that change but i'm happy i did and i enjoyed the challenge as well and i enjoyed all opportunities that that change gave me for example kind of like at the beginning of the year when we sat down to talk about my race program and goals, the team didn't really know me and I also didn't really know the team. And yeah, we set out this rough goal of like, oh, maybe you can go to the Tour of France and maybe you can do a top 10 on GDC. Like, let's see what happens. And then kind of throughout the year, as the team got to know me a little bit more, as I got to know the team a little bit more, it became a lot more of a realistic goal. And then it kind of turned from, top 10 to being like, oh, like, yeah, top 10 we'd be happy with, but I reckon we can do top five here. And then, like, after Dolphinet, I was like, oh, wow, like, we're, we're really getting somewhere with this. So that also led to a lot of disappointment because we had that whole build-up from sort of at the very beginning of joining a new team and kind of having this rough plan of, like, maybe, like, let's just see what happens kind of thing, to then being like, wow, we've, we can really do something here. Like, wow, that's pretty, pretty special. Yeah. Is, was that one of the attractions of leaving that opportunity? Like, do you think that would have came at mid bike yeah. exchange? Um, maybe, but it was more of a definite thing by making that change and having to this team and then having that opportunity. 
like it was more of a, a guarantee or maybe not guaranteed a, a higher chance thing it's pretty cool like they're back to win for the tour de france it's not like you're yeah. the only gc guy on the team yeah and th- that was the cool thing about the whole process was that we kind of started off like not really knowing and then they were kind of like oh yeah we can we'll, we'll give you the opportunity but we'll just kind of like see what happens and then to kind of build those relationships with the staff, the management, and the riders throughout the year, and every step kind of getting a little bit closer, a little bit closer, a little bit closer, and then more and more people kind of like buying into the process. I always kind of had a little bit of self belief there that it was maybe possible, but obviously I, I I didn't know, and I think the people around me also definitely didn't know. And then every step of the way, there's a bit more buy-in, a bit more buy-in, and then we kind of built this really cool thing. Yeah. What what nationality is the majority of staff? Uh, probably Slovenian and Croatian, to be honest. And is, uh, which is quite a big change. Yeah, was that hard to wrap? Like, yeah. obviously, you're quite a you, like you talked about. You build a network in Spain. You've got your houses and coffee shop, and um, you got yeah. a family there now. But it's still a big change from a pretty Australian dominant management squad yeah definitely and i kind of didn't really realize it at the moment but a lot of the staff in uh mitchelton are either spanish or italian as well like a lot of the swanniers and the mechanics and stuff like this and now a lot of the swanniers mechanics are slovenian croatian and i miss being able to overhear the conversation and understand and be able to like chip in a little bit because i understand nothing obviously of slovenian croatian so i missed that part a little bit at the beginning um yeah it was a big change, but there's also quite a lot of international people within the staff as well. Like a lot of the directors, uh, we have uh, Roger Hammond, British director, Ralph, uh, German director, and we have quite a few international people there that I could uh, connect with quite easily. But yeah, it, it's, it definitely was a challenge at the beginning, for sure. Mm. Is there any Bahrain? Like where does the Bahrain connection come to the team? How does that fit into the scheme of the the bigger picture of Bahrain Victorious? Well, so, so it's obviously sponsored by uh, yeah. Prince Bahrain. And uh, from my understanding, one of the major reasons behind sponsoring the team is one to promote the business in Bahrain. So I actually don't know a whole lot about the country Bahrain. Um, I haven't been. I know some of the riders have been to Bahrain. But from my understanding, is it, it's a very... Uh, business focused country so they're trying to bring businesses into Bahrain uh, to to do trade there like for example Bell Helmets I think they're based in Bahrain and they have their headquarters and everything there and the manufacturing there and they do a lot of aluminium manufacturing in Bahrain as well so they're trying to uh, encourage uh, bike brands to do the building of aluminium frames in Bahrain but also one of the other reasons was you saw, I think, at the beginning of the Tour de France, the jersey that we wore for team presentation, and that was a NFT, like a crypto non-fungible token that you could buy that was promoting uh, diabetes. And it's quite a big problem in Bahrain for obesity and diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And that was part of the reason for sponsoring the team is to promote sport and outdoor activity in the country. Yeah. It, it, the Prince doesn't rock up to the Tour? 
Haven't met him. Uh, he didn't rock up the tour. There was plans for him to go to the Giro, but I don't think he made it. He doesn't come to very many events, and I think that's just because he's a prince. Like, <laughs> not though he's in trouble. <laughs> yeah. He's not exactly just jumping on an easy jet flight and going through a normal airport, I don't think. Yeah. How, how did that NFT work? Can you just talk me through that? I knew the... the no, basically. But I didn't, I didn't know there was a, a fungible, non-fungible token attached to it. Yeah, so basically uh, what happened was I wanted to do something to, to try and get this message across for diabetes and obesity and how bad it is around the world. So we had this special jersey made up, which I think looked awesome. Uh, and I kind of wish we got to race in it, but we didn't. But uh, it, it was worn on the team presentation and uh, for the day before the, the race. And the idea was that it was going to be sold off as an NFT online through OpenSea, the cryptocurrency exchange for non-fungible tokens. And all the money that was uh, made through this process was going to be donated towards a charity. Yeah, that's cool. That's good. Yeah. So the team was trying to like, we have quite a cool uh, media manager who is actually half Bahrainian, half uh, British or Irish. Um, and he's got some of these new innovative ideas because he's quite young and he's quite new to the sport of cycling. He's been used to work in uh, other industries and he wants to bring some of these more innovative ideas through cycling, like trying to involve NFTs and like trying to involve different processes of marketing the team, which I actually find quite interesting because I think cycling, like I think we spoke about before, is very stuck in its old school ways. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. How's, um, how's the coffee shop going? We actually sold it last year during the period of COVID and uh, when we weren't getting paid our full salary from uh, Mitchelton. We had the 70% salary cut. I had a business that had to be closed down because of all the COVID restrictions, but it obviously still had bills and everything. And yeah, the future of Mitchelton at a certain moment throughout last year didn't look that great. So Mm -hmm. I was unsure about my salary situation for the year and there's a lot of uncertainty like i think a lot of the world had a lot of uncertainty about the whole covid situation so we sold it last year in the summer or the european summer how, how was the experience of owning a business as well as managing a pro cycling career and a family uh it was really good i'm happy we did it and i think we found out I didn't have a whole lot to do with the business. I obviously was involved and I really enjoyed being involved in the process, but it was mainly my wife, Anna, who did a lot of the work there. And I think what we found we enjoyed, so she enjoyed the most was the process of building the business. So before COVID came and existed, we kind of got the cafe to a point that we were happy with. And instead of it turning into a process of, building a brand and a business, it just turned into more of a people management business of managing the staff that was there because we didn't really have that much to do in terms of renovations or redoing the venue or bringing new products into the cafe because we'd done a lot of that over the eight, nine-month process that we'd been through. And then once it became more of a people management business, it was less appealing to us, that makes sense. Mm. And we much preferred the process of creating something so I'm definitely happy we did it and the whole process of owning a business, managing a business, learning about how the hospitality industry works as a as an owner was a super great experience and I don't regret any part of it at all. 
but I'm also happy we don't have it anymore. <laughs> would you buy another one? Or would you buy something yeah. in the hospitality space? Yeah, so I've always said to people that I really enjoyed having the cafe and, and uh, being a part of that industry. But if I did it again, I would, did it, I would do it on a much smaller scale and more as a hobby rather than a business. Yeah. Yep. Because like at one moment we had seven staff members, which like... What a staff. Uh, it was quite a bit. How big was the eight. coffee shop? Yeah, it was big. Like we could sit maybe 35, 40 people inside. Yeah, that's big. It's a business. Yeah. Was it yeah, good to it have... Like it, 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 you go. full business. Yeah, it was it good to have it something outside, business. like something else to work on? Massively. Massively. Like it was it was a super enjoyable experience to have the business and to be part of something different than just like Jack Haig, the cyclist. Yeah. And like I actually had something on the side and it kept, uh, Anna, it kept Anna really busy and like engaged in... It's going to sound a bit strange, but engaged in like real life rather than just like professional cycling life. Mm. So, when are you going to kick off the next venture? <laughs> the next venture at the moment, just Liam, I think, yeah. and the kid. So, yeah. making sure he's doing well. Uh, we're building a house at the moment in Andorra as well. So, that's keeping us a little bit busy. But I think the, the next business venture might be. Uh, in a few years when Liam gets a bit older and we have a bit more time. At the moment, we're just enjoying being a family. Yeah. Do you think you ever come back? Are you going to come back to Oz any time soon for summer? <laughs> um, uh, so it's quite funny. Uh, Anna would love to come to Australia because she hasn't been because I haven't been back to Australia for almost six years now. Ages. Like it's been a long time and the whole COVID situation has made it even a little bit harder. So depending on the whole situation with quarantine and travel and everything at the end of this year, maybe we come back uh, this Australian summer or it might be the next one. Cause I have to come back eventually to show my family, uh, Liam, because obviously yeah. a lot of my Australian family haven't been able to travel to Europe either. And in that time we've had our kid, none of them met him. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was the same with um, talking to Caleb last week. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We're in a similar situation there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jack, it's um, always a pleasure to chat and it's good to hear uh, though. It's like a, a very disappointing um, break of bones and all, all that went on to it. Sounds like you're in a good place. So it's good to hear. Yeah. We're moving forward and looking forward to new goals and enjoying time at home. And yeah, it's not all bad. It's not all bad. It's not all bad. It's not all bad. All the best for us year, mate. And it's uh, we'll chat to you soon sometime down the track. Thanks for having me on and uh, uh, thanks everyone for staying up and watching the tour in Australia. I know it's not <laughs> the easiest thing, so thanks for all the support.